Hey, good morning, Grace, and happy soon to be Thanksgiving. Beautiful morning to come together and do what we do, worship God and then open his word to see how he might be speaking into our lives and our world today. And so I hope on your way in, you're able to get one of these grace notes, uh, lots of different ways to get connected and plugged in here at Grace, um, whether you are interested in finding out more about just beginning a relationship with Jesus or being discipled to grow in your faith. Uh, finding ways to serve. Uh, we want to see you get plugged in, not just uh, coming on Sunday. So uh, be sure to just uh, fill out that connection card. If you're new to Grace, if this is your first time or one of your first times, welcome. Uh, we are so glad that you are here uh, and would love a chance to meet you, answer any questions you have. We have a, a special gift for you as on your way out the door that we'd like to get you. Um, and this Sunday, is, uh, we're, we're going to be diving into a few things, uh, going a little bit deep so you can uh, you're going to want your Bible this morning, and so get your Bible out, and uh, you can go on and open up actually to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to be all over the place, uh, but hopefully you can, uh, you can follow along. If you need a Bible, just slip up a hand, and, uh, and we'll get a Bible in your hand so that you can follow along with us. Now, while you're finding your way there to Matthew 24, um, a few things to celebrate. Uh, last week was a big Sunday for us as a church, Stand Sunday, when alongside of churches all over the world, we uh, just recognized the, the need of uh, the orphan and the fatherless around the world, as well as vulnerable children in our own backyards. And so, and the biblical call for the church to engage in those places. That we, as, as Grace, have our passion about reaching the next generation. So, of course, uh, those who um, are in vulnerable places or dealing with the trauma and pain, we want to engage there. And so I was just super uh, blessed, to, one, just to, to recognize that for our church, it, it's not just one Sunday of the year that we talk about that, but really it is the heart and the work uh, of you, of this church body all year long. And so with that, one of the, uh, the challenges we laid out there is that we wanted as a church family to provide Christmas uh, for 75 uh, kids in Walton County currently in uh, DFAC's case management. That'd be just over half of the kids in our community who are, um, are uh, in the foster care system. And uh, of those 75, by the end of the morning, all 75 of those kids were, uh, were counted for. So thank you. And uh, those of you that, that got kids, uh, that um, there's information you can talk to, to Kyle or Nicole, Laura, about um, what to do to getting those gifts and those presents together. Um, going to the, uh, not only was it that, but our formed SALT ministry, our senior adults, um, they had been collecting items to put together uh, gift boxes for Operation Christmas Child uh, to go to kids around the world. Their goal was, uh, I believe, 67 boxes. Uh, ended up uh, having enough gifts uh, to, to provide over 80 boxes for uh, Operation Christmas Child. Um, and... Yeah, at the same time that we were uh, celebrating the, I mean, uh, um, sponsoring kids, uh, we had an urgent need that came up that the Grace family of churches felt called to engage in, uh, recognizing that in Gaza right now, there's approximately uh, just uh, under a thousand Christians um, that are sheltering there in the middle of the violence between uh, Hamas and Israel and uh, felt like as brothers and sisters in Christ, we wanted to help provide for immediate relief and food uh, and water to get to those Christians that are in, uh, in Gaza. 
And so, um, so five dollars uh, was like uh, would provide uh, food and water for a day per person. So we're like just over five thousand uh, dollars would um, meet the needs of every Christian in Gaza uh, for a day. And so we uh, we threw that out there. And just last Sunday, um, y'all gave over two thousand dollars to that effort and uh, had another uh, individual that, uh, that said that he would match up to, to $10,000 given towards this effort. So we were still collecting for that. Grace Snellville did the same thing, had $20,000 come in from Grace Snellville. And then today, the rest of the Grace churches are, are um, letting their congregations know what's going on. So uh, just overwhelmed and, and, and humbled by the response of our church to meet the needs, not just in our own backyard, but around the world. And then on Wednesday, uh, we got to celebrate the end of this semester in kids' life and lug and uh, baptized um, uh, seven uh, students and kids who uh, had placed their faith in Christ and begun a new relationship with Jesus. So we celebrate those seven new lives in Christ. Yeah. So overall, just a big week. And I just say thank you. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your generosity uh, and the ways that you continue to engage as, as a church family. Um, but the end of, with everything going on last Sunday morning, I got done <laughs> preaching and I told Sadie, I was like, I felt like I put a, a, I put a bunch of planes in the air and didn't land anything. Um, as we started talking about God's heart for the vulnerable and looking back to Genesis 16 and the story of, of Hagar and Ishmael and, and God who shows up in the midst of her pain. And some of the misunderstandings around uh, what God is saying in that context that, that can easily inform how we respond to what we're seeing in the world today. And to be honest, you know, we have as a church, um, uh, or me personally, have, have been incredibly heavy hearted for the last month, seeing the news and the stories coming out of uh, Israel and Palestine and West Bank and Gaza, because we have a long standing history uh, working in that part of the world with some very close friends that, that live there with their families and are caught up in everything that is happening. And, uh, and um, the events going on uh, as, as we grieve uh, it, with Israel and, and uh, the atrocities of what happened on October 7th, we also have to recognize that uh, the violence and pain and difficulty of that part of the world didn't begin on October 7th. Um, that this is a story that's been going on and that we have engaged in as a church um, to try to bring peace uh, into the land. And so I, I felt very heavy personally as a church uh, family, uh, the Grace family, we have said that our mission's focus is catalyzing Jesus movements in the Muslim world. And, uh, and we have been engaging in that for the last 20 years. As, uh, there's lots of amazing, important, significant needs and, and, uh, and work, mission work around the globe. But it felt like, uh, especially 20 years ago, but even still today, uh, that that was sorely lacked by the American church, that intentional engagement to take the love and the grace um, of Jesus to our Muslim neighbors and uh, the, the Muslim wor in the Muslim world. And so we've engaged in that work for many years. And so with that, uh, have, uh, have felt, uh, I've had conversations almost every day uh, over the last month around questions about how do we understand uh, what is happening in the Middle East right now? And then with that, how do we as followers of Jesus respond to what is happening in the Middle East right now? 
And then alongside of that is what is happening in the Middle East. Is that a sign of the end of the world? Are we living in the end times right now? And how should we respond? And so my goal this morning is to answer all of those questions for you. <laughs> Just kidding. I, I'm going to tee it up, and we're going we're gonna to do a, a deep dive, and I'm going to move quickly um, through some scripture. Uh, but a, a, little, a few caveats. One, no, I'm not going to answer questions about Gog and Magog, and is that Russia or Kyrgyzstan aligning with the Muslim nations, with Iran and China? We're not going there. We could talk about that offline over a cup of coffee. Um, I will, you will probably leave with more questions than answers, and that's okay. I say this every week, and we'll reiterate it strongly today. Way more important than anything that I have to say is what God wants to speak to you through his word. And so my hope for today is that, that this moves you deeper into the scriptures uh, with a heart that's open to God and his word and how he's inviting you to respond based on his scripture ultimately revealed in the person of Jesus. And so also with that, I would ask, you may not agree with everything that I say, and that is totally okay, but I would ask that you just listen, uh, follow me through to the end. Um, and, and let's engage in this as we open our Bible with open hearts and open minds to see what God might be speaking to us so that we can respond as faithful followers of Christ. Amen? You with me? All right, so Lord Jesus, we do ask as we dive into a topic, uh, into your word, um, there's so many questions. There's some that feel uh, especially heavy in our world today. God, will you, by your Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts through your word, your scripture? God, will you use me, however you can and will, uh, Lord, to, to try to articulate your heart and your word? So God, we just come before you as sons and daughters that need you as our good father to lead us forward into this world. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so as we begin with this question about what's going on, a framework for understanding what's happening in the Middle East, a big question uh, that emerges is this question of whose land is it? That it seems to be at its core in a lot of ways uh, a battle for or a conflict about this question for or, uh, uh, ownership of the land. Whose land is it, right? And, and so, uh, and so the, we got to start there. And to get the answer to that question, we've talked before about the, the principle of the law, you know, of first mention uh, in the Bible, that if we really want to understand the way that a certain concept is to be interpreted throughout the scriptures, go back to the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. And what is the first time that land is mentioned in the Bible? The first page. Genesis chapter 1, God created the heavens and the earth. He takes the, the seas and separates them out and forms the land. So whose land is it? God's. And that is critical that we stand on that foundation. The land belongs to God. He created it, he formed it, and he set its boundaries and its markers into place. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. 
And on that land, he creates this garden, this place of abundance and fruitfulness where his goodness could be experienced in intimacy with mankind, creating male and female, Adam and Eve. And he gives them an identity, those created in his image and a calling to take his goodness to the ends of the earth, to have to dominion, to subdue and to rule this good, blessed creation that God had made. And so this identity and this calling that they carry, his children created in his image to take his goodness as a blessing to the ends of the earth is quickly messed up in Genesis chapter three, where mankind turns their back on God, turns against one another, demands knowledge on their own terms and their own ways. In other words, to form their own kingdom apart from God. And in doing so, sin enters the world, and with sin comes death. And with death comes fear. And with sin comes shame and guilt and division and pain. And that sin that's in the individual quickly divides them as a couple. It moves from the couple to the family unit, and violence enters the world, and a world that begins to be fractured. And from the family, it moves to, uh, to the, the family unit, the, the extended family, to, the, to, the, to society and all of culture, all the way to that by Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the world and concludes that all of the thoughts of all of mankind are only wicked all of the time. And so we see God's goodness and his blessing that was intended to be his kingdom on earth where his will was in effect and intimacy and oneness with, uh, with mankind and them and vulnerability with one another is distorted and polluted and fractured in every way. And yet God does not give up on his people. In Genesis 11, we get mankind rallying together, trying to still hold on to their own kingdom. They build a city, and in that city they build, uh, called Babel, they build this tower to reach up to the heavens to make a name for themselves, to set themselves up as being their own gods. And God casts them down, and he scatters them throughout the world, and he divides their languages. And in that language, being that thing that would intimately connect us one to another, language is what connects our heart to each other, that I hear you, I, I, I am with you, I respond to you, I understand you, I know you. And all of a sudden, that intimacy intended for humanity between us and God, his voice first and then our voice with one another second, is scattered and divided, and confusion reigns over the earth. At the end of Genesis chapter 11, with a world divided and a world scattered, out of that confusion, God names a couple, Abram and Sarai. And at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, God calls out this couple from the confusion and the pain and the violence and the division, the shame and the guilt of this sinful, broken world. And he gives them a calling, an identity, and a purpose that echoes his original intent all the way back in Genesis chapter one and two. We can put it on the screen, Genesis 12, one. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. In other words, leave everything that you know, your homeland, your people, 
and your father's house. And I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. God created, called forth Abram and Sarai, his wife, to bless them in order that they would become a blessing. In other words, he takes them from their country, their, from their homeland, their, their people group, and their family unit in order to form for himself a new family that would become a people group that would extend into a new land and bring a blessing, as it says, to all people everywhere. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12 is that through Abram's family line, God would bring about a blessing for all the nations. That it wasn't just about Abram and Sarai, it wasn't even just about their family, it wasn't just about their homeland, it was for all the people everywhere. Now there's a, a saying in all of the, the, the turmoil going on in the Middle East and, uh, and the church trying to respond to what is happening. And this phrase that we stand with Israel and oftentimes it's this, it, what gets quoted is this phrase, we stand with Israel because, uh, because those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. I don't know if you've heard that, right? Those who bless Israel will be blessed, those who curse Israel will be cursed. The problem is that that's actually not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is this right here. Those who bless who? Abram. And those who curse Abram will be cursed. Now you can't connect that to Abram's family line and that, the great, that I'm gonna make you into a great nation. I will bless you, your name will be great and you will be a blessing. But again, the main point of what God is doing with Abram and his family line is blessing them, yes, setting them apart, yes, giving them an identity and a calling, yes, but it's to fulfill a promise to redeem the world. And we got into this last week a little bit that, that Abram then, uh, and Sarai, because uh, his wife is barren, she can't have any children, uh, concoct a plan to, to have a child through her uh, maidservant, uh, um, an Egyptian slave uh, named Hagar. Hagar gets pregnant and uh, is... Uh, and is cast away from her family. She end ends up in the wilderness there in Genesis chapter 16, running away from Sarai. And God finds her there in the wilderness. And I went through this uh, last week, so I won't dive into it except just to, to note that God shows up in her brokenness alone there and speaks a word over her. It's the first birth announcement in the Bible. It's the first time that God names a baby. And it's the first time that a human gives a name to God. This deeply intimate interaction where Hagar recognizes a God who sees her, a God who names her son Ishmael, and Ishmael meaning God hears. That in your pain, in the place that you feel lost and abandoned, God shows up, I see you, I hear you, and I have a plan for you. And we talked about that, uh, that this word spoken over Ishmael, that, um, that he would be a wild donkey of a man, and that we hear that from our, you know, our English vernacular, and that sounds like an insult. That your son is a wild ass, is what some translations say. 
And if you were to say that about my son, I would be offended. Even if it's true, you don't get to say that, right? Well, the problem is let Scripture interpret Scripture. The other place that, that the Scriptures talk about the wild donkey is Job chapter 39, where God is using the wild donkey to talk about the freedom of a people that aren't, uh, that are not in the clamor of the city, but run free in the wilderness. And so God is saying to this slave woman in the wilderness, lost and scared and alone, I see you, I hear you, I am blessing you with the son, and your son will be born free. It's a powerful statement of God's heart for all people. Genesis 17, God's even more clear, talking about that I'm gonna, I'm gonna fulfill my covenant promise, Genesis 12, through your son with Sarai, who will, be, who will become Isaac, but even your son Ishmael I will bless. That's important and we'll hold, like, set that over here for now. But God is fulfilling a plan, uh, his covenant promise to Abraham, and Sarai gets pregnant with Isaac, uh, Isaac is born. Isaac grows up. He has a son named Jacob. Jacob gets a name change. Jacob's name change becomes Israel. So Jacob, who is Israel, then has 12 sons. Those 12 sons grow up and they begin to have their own families. Those families become the 12 tribes of Israel, grandson of Abraham the one that God promised to fulfill that through his family line, I will bless all the peoples on earth. Right, we're tracking? So uh, uh, that family continues to grow. Where as they're growing, famine hits. They end up in Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, they multiply in abundance, uh, fulfilling God's call in Genesis chapter one, that they be people with an identity, people with a calling to bless and to multiply, to be fruitful. But Pharaoh doesn't like that. He's intimidated by that. So he enslaves the people. And so for hundreds of years, they're building bricks in the empire of Egypt. But it says that God hears his cries, sees his people, the same language as Genesis chapter 16 in Exodus. And he raises up a deliverer, and that deliverer is a guy named Moses. Moses shows up, begins, uh, leads his people through this series of miraculous events, through the Red Sea, the, uh, out of the shedding of the blood of a lamb that God passes over, the Israelite people, their families in their homes, leads them through the blood across the sea and towards the land that God had originally promised to Abraham. And as they're making their way through the land, or to, sorry, to the land that God had promised to fulfill their identity and their calling, God, uh, Moses stops by a place called Mount Sinai and God gives him the law as a covenant, uh, uh, the marker that's going to set them apart from the other people on the earth. And so there's three things that we find that throughout the rest of the Old Testament become identity markers for the Jewish people who are the children of Isaac, I mean, sorry, the children of Israel, the sons of Abraham. And those three things are this. <clears throat> the law the temple and the land. <clears throat> the law, the temple, and the land. 
the law, the, the way that they're there to live is a set apart before God in, in covenant with him to follow and obey his voice, his word, his will. The temple, originally the tabernacle, the place that God's presence would dwell with his people, that God himself would be their God and they would be his people, that they would have access to the creator God who created all of the heavens and earth. And because they have access to God, they would be considered a kingdom of priests. In other words, that they would represent God to the people and God uh, and the people to God. And the land, this place flowing with milk and honey, a place of abundance, a place of shalom, in a sense, a new Eden in which the, God's people, his chosen people, would live in intimacy and relationship with God, fulfilling his covenant promises. But remember, the original promise of Genesis 12 wasn't simply that God would bless the children of Abraham, was it? It was that, they would, that God would bless the children of Abraham, the family of Abraham. So why? That they would be a blessing. Now, Israel, over and over again, the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the children of Israel will forget their identity and their calling. And they'll begin to think that God is more, is more about them than he is about the rest of the world. And they will begin to oppress. They'll quit listening to his voice. They'll give up on the covenant. They'll lose their identity and their calling. And in doing so, God had already told them, you walk away from me. You're no, under, no longer under my umbrella of protection. You're moving into exile apart from me to be oppressed and subjugated by the empires of this world just as you were in Egypt. And we see that cycle happen over and over again throughout the Old Testament. But the Jewish people, God's chosen people, leads to a question, which is what were they chosen for? In Deuteronomy 7.5, as the people stand on the edge of the wilderness, getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, God says, you are a holy people, a set-apart people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. But for what purpose? He continues. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For in fact, you're the fewest, the least of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. In other words, God chose Israel for a specific purpose out of love for them and for the world. That they were chosen not out of preference, but for a purpose. And that purpose was that through them, God would carry out his redemptive plan for all people everywhere. Well, God's promise <clears throat> remains true. And through that covenant line of Abram to Isaac to Jacob will one day come a son born from the family line of King David, born to a poor woman in a stable. And that baby would be named Jesus. 
And in Jesus, all of the prophecies would be fulfilled about the king to come that would fulfill God's plan for the world. And when Jesus grows up, he begins to teach the ways of God with an authority that the people of his day didn't recognize. And he begins to teach about the law. And what does Jesus say about the law? Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That Jesus says that I am the fulfillment of everything that the law was pointing to. In fact, after Jesus ends up going to the cross where, he's di- where he uh, declares that he is dying for the forgiveness of the sins of mankind, he rises from the dead, defeating sin and death. And as some of his followers are, be- are trying to process what has happened, they've just watched Jesus die on a cross and they're walking along this road to a town called Emmaus. And it says that Jesus comes along beside them. It is in Luke chapter 24. And he's listening to them process what just happened in Jerusalem, that Jesus, who they thought was the Messiah, the promised king, the anointed one, that was going to fulfill God's promises, but he was just crucified. And they continue, but there are some of our women that are saying that they have seen him. In fact, he has been raised from the dead. And Jesus, walking alongside of them, says, how foolish you are, excuse me, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And listen to this. And beginning with Moses, the law, and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, the law, the whole time, was pointing to Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus Jesus embodied the fulfillment of God's intent with the law, which was to create for himself a people with whom he could dwell. In fact, Romans 8.3 says this, Paul writes, for what the the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. And so he condemned sin in the flesh that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Jesus calling people back to God's heart and intent when he gave them the law in the wilderness, but ultimately fulfilling the thing that the law could never do, which was to reconcile God's people back to himself. So Jesus talks a lot about the law. He also talks a lot about the temple. Namely, what he says is this temple, this place that you see standing as glorious and magnificent as it is, it will be overthrown. And John 2, 18. On account of this, the Jews demanded, what sign can you prove us to prove your authority to do these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up again. This temple took 46 years to build, the Jews replied, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. 
And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus looks at the temple and says, this is going to be overthrown, but there's another temple and that temple is my body and that temple will be raised up. All of the things that the temple was pointing to are being fulfilled in me. You no longer need a temple because I am here and I am doing what the temple can never do, which is once and for all, offering a sacrifice for your sin that can pay for all of the sin of all of mankind over all of history. <clears throat> Mark 13, 1, Jesus leaving the temple, one of his disciples says to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what a magnificent building. <clears throat> Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. In fact, we get this picture in Revelation 21, 22. The beloved apostle John God gives him a picture of the end of times, which really is the fulfillment of times and maybe the beginning of the best of times when God comes back and wipes away sin once and for all, wipes away every tear. And in that picture of God fulfilling his promises from the beginning, of him restoring shalom, wholeness to the earth, he says, I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the king of the earth, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So Jesus talks a lot about the law, says, I am fulfilling it. It was always pointing to me. <clears throat> Jesus talks a lot about the temple. It says, it is going to be overthrown. I am fulfilling it. It was always pointing to me. But what about the land? Jesus never talks about the land. Even though it would have been one of the hottest topics going on in every rabbinic circle, every pharisaical conversation, was about the land because the people of God once exiled had returned to the land but still found themselves in occupied territory under the oppression of another empire. And so the question is becoming, God, you promised the land for your people, a safe place where your people would dwell with you as a signpost of your kingdom, as a kingdom of priests, as a holy nation, as a light to the nations. But God, we're in the land and we're not in charge. We're in the land and we are oppressed and there's another empire that's a pagan empire that is against everything you stand for and they're the ones reigning as emperor and king. But Jesus never talks about the land. But he does talk a whole lot about the kingdom of God because Jesus was doing something so much bigger than simply returning the land, a specific spot of land to a specific group of people. His primary concern was not the kingdom of Israel, but the kingdom of God. He was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. In fact, right before, after, the, after he uh, suffers, dies on the cross, 
rises from the dead, spends 40 days explaining from the law and the prophets how everything had to be fulfilled in himself. And he's, he's getting ready to ascend up to heaven to take his rightful place as the king of kings at the right hand of God. And Acts 1, 6. So when they, the disciples, had come together with Jesus, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, what about the land, God? Are you going to set your people into place now? And Jesus says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, you're missing the point. But he continues, but you will receive power, not the power you think you need, but the power you actually need. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria, all the boundaries of the land and to the ends of the earth. In other words, Jesus saying, I am doing something so much bigger. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, I love this, the angels show up. Like men of Galilee. All right, dudes, why are you standing looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you saw him go. So Jesus leaving them with these words that it's not about the land, it's about the earth. It's not just about one people, it's about all people. It's not about an earthly kingdom, it's about the kingdom of God. That Jesus' focus is not on the children of God returning to the land in order to restore the kingdom of Israel, but instead on the children of God going out into the world, beginning in Israel in order to restore the kingdom of God to the entire earth all people everywhere. And so as followers of Jesus, we stand on this side of Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension. We stand on this side of his calling and identity, and we stand on this side of God fulfilling his promises. If we are still on this side, then yes, we are still waiting for a lot of things to happen, and and we are still expecting something to happen in that spot of the earth. But now God's inviting us to raise our expectations to something bigger. Not simply the presence of God returning to a specific place for a specific people, but the presence of God available for all people in every place. And in fact, Paul in Athens, it says that he's in Athens, Acts 17, and greatly distressed because the city is full of idols. They do not know God. And they're arguing. It says that they said this, that he's advocating foreign gods because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then he continues, this familiar passage uh, for many. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. 
as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very things that you worship. And so this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Now listen to this. The God who made the world, who does the land belong to? And everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. For, for, from, ah, sorry. from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this. Such a beautiful line. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. So then the question becomes, on this side of history, in, in light of what Jesus has done, fulfilling the law and the temple and the land and the kingdom of God, is there still a place for the Jews, God's chosen people, the ones to whom the promises were made? And the answer is yes, clearly. Paul says so, Romans chapter 11. Paul asks the same question. I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, Paul says, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they killed your prophets and they've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. In other words, Israel, still the children of God who God loves, but now also the Gentiles, the rest of the world, the children of God whom God loves. God's desire is that all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile, male and female, would all come into reconciliation with God, their creator. And so Jesus makes it clear that he's coming back for his people. And that this will be the final fulfillment of the prophets when God restores everything to be as it should be. So the question, aren't the Jewish people coming back to the land a sign of the end times when Jesus is coming back? And the Bible gives a beautiful picture of the children of God the sons and daughters of Abraham returning to Jerusalem where they offer right and beautiful worship to God and where they are able to dwell in security and peace. And in that moment of, God, of the return of God's people the, through Israel to Jerusalem, God is bringing about his ultimate reign both 
deeper into even these pictures that the Israelites held on to for centuries, that their return to the land and dwelling in peace would be a sign that ushers in the end of times. Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. That line right there is still being held on to by Jews to this day. This, this picture of being brought back into the land, this beautiful picture. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried like a child on the hip, coming back to their father who longs for them. Then you shall see and be radiant, talking about God. Your heart shall thrill and exult. This picture of his children coming home fills God's heart to overflowing because the abundances of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels, this, this picture of wealth. We recognize that God doesn't need the riches of the world. What is precious to him and most valuable to him are his people. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come and they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Here's a beautiful picture, sorry, a beautiful prophetic picture uh, that you can write in there. The Magi question mark. But what we do know, Midian and Ephah and Sheba, is that they are the sons of Abraham with Keturah, his third wife in Genesis chapter 25. Abraham, who's the son of Shem, the son of Noah. And it continues, all the flocks of Kadar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful house. So who is offering these acceptable gifts on the altar? That is, what is beautiful in the house of God, in the presence of God? Well, Kadar and Naboth in Genesis chapter 25, 13 are the firstborn sons of Ishmael. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first to bring your children from afar. Who is Tarshish? He's the grandson of Japheth, the second son of Noah. Their silver and their gold with them for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel because he has made you beautiful. Continues verse 13. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you. And who is the Lebanese? It's the Canaanites who are the sons of Ham, the third son of Noah. In other words, who are the children of God that are gathering on the mountain offering a beautiful, acceptable worship to God? all of God's children, all of the sons of Noah, Ham and Shem and Japheth, all of the sons of Abraham, Isaac and Ishmael, that God's heart is full and overflowing when beautiful worship is offered by all of his people everywhere, 
and praise the Lord for that. Because we sit in this room today worshiping God and opening his word because his heart is for all people everywhere, including us. Even though probably the majority of you in this room don't have an ounce of Jewish blood in you. And then this picture in Revelation 4. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he declares out loud, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And who are these servants of God that God is sealing with his mark? to bring about his deliverance. 144,000 or this number of completion from all the tribes of Israel. And then it goes through and it names all 12 tribes, this beautiful picture of the four corners of the world coming together, God bringing them to himself. Does God still have a plan and a purpose for Israel, for the children of God? Yes. But it continues. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and every tribe and every people and every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, wearing white robes and holding palm branches, the sign of victory in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. The reverse of Babel and the confusion of the world, all languages, and all people gathered together beginning in Pentecost and ending or in, uh, culminating in this time when Jesus returns to take his children to himself, both the children born from the line of Abraham and all of those who've been grafted in because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So then what is the sign of these end times that the Bible talks about and Jesus references? And I know I made a joke about Gog and Magog and Ezekiel. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about when I say that. You can look it up. But there's a whole lot of debate that goes on about is this, uh, is this Russia or Kyrgyzstan, the people of the Black Sea, and are they partnering with these other people groups? And as this comes in, it is going to culminate in this giant battle, and that giant battle will be the final, uh, the, the final event that ushers in the coming of the Lord. And there's about a dozen different interpretations of what that passage in Scripture means. And not to discount that we need to study and know the Bible backwards and forwards, and it is worth diving into and digging into. But I'm not going to put a whole lot of effort into energy and energy into something that is so unclear when Jesus states some things very clearly. So Matthew 24, this is Jesus who has just made this declaration 
that the temple is going, to be t- is going to be overthrown, the place that the presence of God dwells with the people, the place that was the symbol of, of, God, of, of God's blessing in the land for his people, that every stone would be overturned. And for the Jewish people living in that time, that statement or that coming to reality would feel like the end of the world. Everything that they knew and were trusting in was literally crashing down around them in a wave of fire. And that prophecy ended up being fulfilled about 40 years later in AD 70. And you throw that picture up there. When the, when the Jews rebel against Rome, Rome comes in, lays siege to Jerusalem for two years, and literally every stone of the temple was torn down and burned in fire. So much so that when you go to Israel today, there's not a stone of the temple left standing. The only, when you, even when you go to the, whaling, or to the Western Wall, which is uh, where the Jews go to pray, and you can see the picture of them with their hand, you know, praying with the hands on the temple, or uh, what looks like the temple. Actually, what they're praying, that, that is not a wall of the temple. That is a retaining wall that built the foundation upon which the temple was built. Because there is nothing left of the temple. What Jesus promised, that there is going to be a great tragedy that is, go- that is, going, to, that is going to impact and affect all of you, John, even writing Revelation, is writing in the aftermath of what happened in AD 70 when the temple was overthrown and, and torn down in fire and bloodshed. So Jesus predicting this, this, uh, this future of incredible chaos and crises and trauma makes this statement that to them is a declaration of the end of the world. And so they come to him. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse three, the the disciples came to him privately saying, so tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King, the promised one. And they will lead many astray and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. That Jesus is very clear that I'm leaving you in a world of turmoil and trauma, of conflict and violence. But I'm telling you in the midst of that world, I'm offering you a path forward with me, a promise of peace and joy, of purpose and belonging. And I don't know if in our lifetime, Jesus will come back, though I hope that he does. And looking at the, the, the signs of the globe around us and the advances of our world, I would not be surprised. The question is, will we be found faithful when he returns? And even if in our generation or our lifetime, Jesus doesn't come back, there's a really good chance that just like to the, to the Jews living in Jerusalem in AD 70, 
we will live or our children will live in a time that it feels like the world is collapsing around us, that it is for us, having lived in the abundance of the American culture, the end of the world. And Jesus very honestly calls his people to a life of faithfulness. And what he says is this, there will be a lot of people offering you a lot of false hopes when everything is falling apart around you. There's gonna be a lot of people that are holding out places that a promise to, for, uh, that they can provide for you, that they will protect you, that you can put your hope and security, your trust in them, that they are your anointed king. They are your promised ones, but they're false, they're counterfeit. And you've probably heard this as a, how do you identify a counterfeit? So therefore, are we supposed to go through all the messages of the world, all the different uh, ways that the world is saying that this is, this is who you can trust, this is who you can follow, this is who you can set your hopes on, and try to discern out based on who they are and what they say, are they telling the truth? Well, the way that you find a counterfeit is not by studying all the counterfeits. There's just too many. If you work for uh, the, the Secret Service, the way that you learn to identify counterfeits is not by studying counterfeits, but by being so familiar with the real thing that when any counterfeit presents itself, it is obvious that it's a fake. And so what Jesus is saying is not become obsessed with all of the counterfeits that are out there, but instead be so honed in, so focused on me that in the midst of all of these competing voices, you know what's true. Because there will be many that are shaken in those days, Jesus says, and many who will fall away. And what weighs on me as a pastor living in these times is this question. Will we be a people found faithful when it feels like the world is ending around us? So Jesus says, be ready for disasters, both human and natural. Be ready for persecution and that many will fall away under the pressure. But instead of looking to obscure prophecies to determine what God is doing and when he is doing it, God gives, I mean, Jesus gives a very clear picture of what we should be looking for. And in Matthew 24, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. What is our focus in the end times? What are we looking to to determine the last days? That the good news of the kingdom of God available for all people through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the grace of God available by his sacrifice on the cross, the true king, who reigns over everything on hev in heaven and on earth. 
by his resurrection, that that good news, the availability of the presence of God for his people, with his people, in his people, available for all people, would be preached and proclaimed to all nations. But there's an urgency not to live in fear because fear very quickly becomes hatred and blame. And we are surrounded by enough of that. And hatred and blame very quickly becomes violence. And all that we see, the results of violence is more violence. It's the cycle of this world. And so hopeless people without a savior, all they can do is move towards fear that becomes hatred, that becomes violence. And we are called to a different way. And so as we look at what is happening around the world, the question we have to ask is, who is Jesus inviting, calling us to be as his chosen people? How is Jesus calling us to respond in the midst of the ending of this world? How will we be found faithful? And what does faithfulness look like? Well, in Christ, who models that faithfulness to God is self-sacrificial love and generosity, a people who bless their enemies and those who curse them, those who love their neighbors and their enemies. That Jesus says, I have strategically placed you in the middle of the mess that you can be a signpost for the kingdom to come. So if we're gonna set our focus on one thing, it shouldn't be whether the nations are aligning or the mark of the beast is upon us, but that the gospel is being preached. And so from that position, in the chaos and the violence of this world, we can stand with Jewish people who desperately need to know the love and the grace, the peace and the hope that is only found in Jesus Christ. That they can move from fear. I found this picture. If you don't know me, my name is Brian. Hi. Uh, Krawczyk is my last name. Krawczyk, if you want to pronounce it correctly. Uh, my great-grandfather immigrated from, from Poland uh, in between the wars and um, World War I and World War II and uh, from outside, of, a little village outside of Krakow. And so, uh, so he, praise the Lord, my family, my direct family was not in, um, in Europe during the time of uh, the Holocaust. But uh, I found this picture. This is the Krawczyk family um, in 1948 that they uh, were survivors of the Holocaust and uh, had just been rescued out of concentration camps. Um, they're in a displaced person camp when this picture was taken. And I don't know if I'm directly or how closely related I am to, to these Krawczyks. Uh, but what struck me about this picture is how much that little boy in the middle looks exactly like my youngest son. And do I want that family to be able to live in peace? 
Yes. To not have to fear, to know that they are loved, that they are seen and heard and not forgotten. Do I want that family to know that God is for them and made himself as a good father available through Jesus desperately. That family left that displaced placement camp and they joined a, a blossoming movement called the Zionist movement and they, uh, they set up a homestead in the newly formed Israel in 1948. 49 for them by the time they got there. And I want them to know peace. But also I think about this family, Atta and his sons, a good friend of ours and his little grandson. And these women and their children that we met in the West Bank. And do I want Atta and his family to know peace? To know that they're seen and heard and loved? I mean, Desperately. And we'll keep going until they do. Until the gospel, the good news of Jesus is proclaimed to every nation because the kingdom of God isn't about a specific people or a specific place. It is about all people in every place. And I want Atta and his little grandson to know peace and to find Jesus. And so we can stand with our Palestinian friends and neighbors and their hurt and their pain. And we can grieve with those who grieve and we can call out injustice where there is injustice and we can call out hate in this world where there is hate because we belong to a higher kingdom. And I will say this, that to question or to even protest the actions of a government is not to be against the people. Just as much as it would be to say that to protest abortion is not to be anti-American. As Jesus' people, we are called by God to love all people with self-sacrificial love that shows up, especially in places of pain. On both sides of every wall. And we are also called by God to recognize and to name injustice where it's happening. And that what happened on October 7th didn't begin on October 7th. The story of Hamas didn't begin in 96. The pain of, of the people of the land did not begin in the last couple years. And so we as a people need to be brave enough to look for what is true and what is right and what is good and to call out what is wrong and what is bad and what is evil, regardless of who, what side it is on, because we stand on one side and that is with, for one kingdom and that is the kingdom of God. So what is the big conclusion? 
Is this the end of the world? I don't know. Maybe. I do know this. Jesus is really clear about two things. One, no one knows when. I have a great little chart up there. These are all the prophecies made about the end of the world. And when they were predicted to come true, all of them have passed and none of them happened. We're still standing here. My favorite ones are the people that predict and then they live through that prediction so they just predicted a few years later. No one knows. And it is a waste of time from mathematical calculations and cryptic prophecies to try to determine the day and the hour, the season and the time. Our focus needs to be on Jesus and his kingdom and that the gospel will be preached to the nations. Jesus also made it clear, no one knows when, but always be ready because it could happen at any, t- any point. Be a people who are found faithful, that we have the, the standing in Christ, that when the world crumbles around us, it doesn't shake us because we're living in the reality of a bigger story. Will you be that kind of person? What happens when the lights go off and the power goes out and the internet is gone and the banking institutions crumble? Worst case scenario, walk it to the end. What happens? Who is your hope in? Who is your savior? What are you trusting in? Because any foundation that you are building your life on that is not the kingdom of God is a shaky foundation and all shaky foundations will someday fall apart. Be found faithful. I'll close with this. I know it's a lot. There's a cute little parable that we teach our children about these servants that the master gives uh, different talents or different pieces of of, of gold to go and to invest. And he gives one, one talent or uh, one measure of money and one, five talents and one, 10 talents. And the master goes away for a long time. And, and then he comes back and he holds him to account. What'd you do with the money I entrusted to you? And uh, the one with 10 talents is like, master, I took your 10 and I made 10 more. And he's like, oh, way to go. And he goes, five, I took your five and I, I made five more. It's like, man, that's awesome. And the one that had one, said, I was scared of you because I know you're a ruthless master. I questioned the heart of his master. So I buried it and I hid it. And the master looks at him grieved and says, away with you, worthless servant. That parable, as cute as it is, teaching our kids to do something good with what you've been given, that parable is actually in the context of Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives about the end of the world. There's a much more significant and dire context in which that teaching is given, where our master looks at us and says, what are you doing with what I've entrusted to you? And will you hold firm and will you trust my heart no matter what happens? Will we be those kinds of people? And so Lord Jesus, even as we declare our worship to you, that you are a good God, worthy of all praise. As we open your word and and our hope, God, is that you would use it to form our lives and strengthen our character so that we can stand firm, rooted in your love, established by your word. 
God, would you have your way with us? And if there's anything in us that we need to repent of, any ways that we have let the, the, the messages or the ways of the world shape the way we are living or seeing, if there's any people group that we've approached with fear or with hatred, God, may we repent. Will you give us our, your heart, Lord? If there's any false hopes that we're holding on to, any places that, we're, that we've placed our security that is not in you, God, may we repent and turn back to you, our only strong and secure help and hope. God, will you call us forward that we would enter eyes wide open into the brokenness of this world and have your heart for all people. And God, we do pray for peace in the Middle East, God. We pray for peace in Jerusalem. We pray for the blessing of all of your children, sons of Isaac and sons of Ishmael. God, that all would have come to a saving knowledge of you as their Lord and Savior and forgiveness and rest and grace. And so Lord, even as we take communion, we recognize that it was your body given for us that we could have your presence in us, the reality of the living God by your Holy Spirit. And we hold on to that cup and we remember, Lord, that you said, this is your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins, the blood of a new covenant, the formation of a new people, forgiven and set free. And so as we receive your forgiveness and your freedom, may we be a people that bring forgiveness and freedom and hope into this world. We lay all of this before you in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.